Everybody, man, will you look at them feet? Man, look at that cone. And them watermelons must be at least three feet low. Man, look at them tomatoes. This is hell. Live from the United States, where far too often the law is the crime. This is hell. The opioid epidemic was the scourge that burned across the United States, but particularly within rural communities. The loss of life was devastating, not only to the friends and families of those whose lives were lost, but to their entire community and region. Luckily, those same people all came together to ward off the evils of oxycodone and the violent crime it causes. Eventually, their efforts would pay off, leading to litigation that ended up with the Sackler family, who profited from the menace of oxy, paying some $225 million in a settlement where they also denied any wrongdoing and were never charged with any crime. So justice was kind of served, but there's another far different side of the story. And it's not about people coming together, nor is it about Oxy tearing their communities apart. More than anything, it's about how the public response fueled by federal dollars ripped communities to shreds, pitting neighbor against neighbor, turning everyone into a narc. Some went so far as to attend trials of those arrested on charges related to opioid possession or sale in order to intimidate members of the court, in order to bring about more harsh sentences against their fellow residents. Instead of confronting whatever opioid scourge there was as a public health issue, and that is very much up to debate how much of a scourge it truly was and is, it was instead criminalized and the newly militarized police, the massive expansion of the newly minted mass incarceration system, was ready. And it's not only President Clinton's crime omnibus legislation that led to mass incarceration that decimated rural areas. It was also his Republican-supported welfare reform which took the responsibility for welfare distribution and job training from the federal government and imposed it upon local entities who are completely unprepared. We'll do our best to get a better understanding of what really happened during the so-called opioid epidemic in a few when we have the return of Terrence Ray, who wrote the baffler piece, United in Rage. Half-truths and myths propelled Kentucky's war on opioids. Terrence is a writer living in Whitesburg, Kentucky, so he knows, and is co-host of the podcast Trill Billy Workers Party. This is Terrence's second appearance on This Is Hell. Terrence was on in April of 2019 when we talked about another article at The Baffler, which he wrote. That one was titled, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. You can follow Terrence and Trillbillies at The Trillbillies on Twitter. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. During this week's moment, Jeff eats from the poison tree. 
producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far? I haven't There's seen you for a while. Two new items of note at the grocery store downstairs if you're interested. What's that? One, camel milk. Oh, yeah, I've seen that before. Do they have camel meat right now as well? Uh, no, yeah. Garib Nawaz down the street has it, but uh, I asked about the camel milk, and uh, I was assured that it's salty. The weird thing about camel meat is the price. Like, everything else is like a buck forty-nine, a buck ninety-nine. you know, something 49 or 99 for whatever reason, camel meat's always two fifty a pound. It's just kind of a weird thing. Two fifty. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> and the second thing on the uh, new item at the grocery store is hard chicken. <laughs> so it's, I was just looking at a sign next to, next to each other is camel meat and uh, hard chicken. Do you think it was hardened in prison? Do you think it was like it's had a hard life? Do you think that's what it is? Uh, I was looking up what a hard chicken is. It just means it's old chicken that's literally hard. Have you figured out what baby lamb is yet? <laughs> no, is that for sale somewhere? <laughs> yes, always. On Devon, there's always signs for baby lamb as opposed to lamb. I'm Damn. not too sure what the difference is. I think it's like flammable and inflammable. Personally, I'm freaking out about Jeff Dorchin coming to town next week, and I'll talk to Jeff about that following the moment of truth. Jeff will also be making a big announcement about his upcoming visit, so you're going to want to stay tuned in for that. But more important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what the hell is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what can you do that a robot can't? What can you do that a robot can't? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways that you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. As we do not accept any grants, we're not a not-for-profit. We can't afford to be a not-for-profit. We haven't even applied for any grants. <laughs> we can't even. I don't know if we could or if I'd want to. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. This week's question from hell is, what can you do that a robot can't? What can you do that a robot can't? We got a message from a listener who heard my monologue or rant or whatever the hell you want to call it on Tuesday about this being Disability Pride Month, which I guess started in 1991 and I'm only finding out about it now, which is weird because I'm disabled. I mentioned that as a disabled person myself, I find it very difficult to be proud of my disability as it is not a mark of achievement or the outcome of anything I did. It's just my mom and dad having sex and horrible genetics. Listener Jeff C. sent a message via Facebook saying Facebook would not let me access This Is Hell's Facebook page. I wanted to remark about Disability Pride Month. Besides what you said, pride is not a virtue. People, stop trying to make pride a good thing. Pride is self-flagellation. Pride will bed with anyone. Proof is, for example, a white supremacist ally. Pride is not a virtue. Thanks, Jeff C. Yes, being proud of being white is a great example of how pride can go really really wrong. We also got a guest suggestion from listener Tom G, who writes, I enjoyed your interview about the United States Postal Service with Brian Justy, author of the article, The Non-Machinables. I forwarded a link to that interview to my brother, who is retired from a career with the post office, with a trigger warning that it could evoke bad memories of his time working there. And we got a lot of responses from people who are postal workers who said they really enjoyed that interview. 
Tom goes on to say on another topic, I happened upon this blurb and an excerpt from the introduction to what sounds like a compelling title from Haymarket Books, whose author you may wish to invite on This Is Hell for an interview. The book is Warped, Gay Normality and Queer Anti-Capitalism, and it's by Peter Drucker. And that name sounds really familiar to me, but I might be thinking of a 1980s business writer. I don't know why. According to Haymarket's page on Warped, Recent victories for LGBTQ rights have gone faster than most people imagined possible. Yet the accompanying rise of gay normality has been disconcerting for activists with radical sympathies. In Warped, Peter Drucker shows how the successive same-sex formations of the past century and a half have led both to the emergence of today's homonormativity and homonationalism and to ongoing queer resistance. Thanks, Tom. Queer anti-capitalism homo-normativity, homo-nationalism. Those are not topics we have discussed on the show yet, and we always appreciate it when listeners suggest topics that we have not covered here on This Is Hell Yet. So we're going to look into it. And remember, if any of you have any guest or topic suggestions, send it to us via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll likely read your suggestion on air. Coming up, how the opioid epidemic tore communities apart, and it's not in the way you think it did. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast, and we'll have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as well as tell you what's happening on next week's set of shows. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is hell. The way the opioid epidemic story is told, the heroic response by communities brought together to fight the scourge, is not what actually happened. And to what extent it was and is a scourge is also highly debatable. Returning to This Is Hell to hopefully give us a much better understanding of what really happened and to discuss his amazing article. Terrence Ray wrote the baffler piece, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Terrence. Thanks for having me, guys. This is a really fantastic article. How long did you work on this? Well, I started working on it in about January. It started out as a look at Hal Rogers, who is my congressman here in Eastern Kentucky. He's been a congressman since 1980. And then I started looking into this program he started in 2003 called Operation Unite. And it kind of just spiraled from there. I spent a lot of time researching in microfilm archives, newspaper archives, and interviews. So it's been a long time coming. This is Terrence's second appearance here on This Is Hell. He was on in April of 2019 when we talked about another article at The Baffler, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. And you can just go to thisishell.com and search on his name and find that interview. You can follow Terrence on Twitter at The Trillbillies. He is co-host of the podcast Trillbilly Workers Party. And we probably shouldn't tell you this as they literally have 10 times more subscribers than we do, but you can also <laughs> find Trillbilly Workers Party at patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. So you point out that the way the story is told is on one side are the villains, Purdue Pharma and other large pharmaceutical companies, drug sales representatives, pill mill pain specialists and street dealers. On the other side are the heroes, primary care physicians, parents, civic and faith leaders, scientists and law enforcement officials. The accounts nearly always frame the epidemic as a static battle of good versus evil. The chain of events comprising it is a 
linear causal path of injury and response. Big Pharma targeted places like central Appalachia because they were poor and deindustrialized, and opioids became rampant there for those very same reasons. In response to the influx, civilian heroes handed together, banded together to fight back against the villains using their tools of community action and litigation. While well-intentioned, this narrative is incorrect. So the well-intentioned nature of that story is one of you know, collective empowerment, that the community can come together and stop anything. What does that well-intentioned narrative mislead the community into believing? What is misunderstood about the opioid ep- epidemic when the well-intentioned narrative is believed as true and accurate? Well, so as I pointed out, it is this sort of linear narrative It just assumes that places like central Appalachia were sort of sitting here waiting for it, waiting for the introduction of a drug like Oxycontin, which is a powerful analgesic opioid, rather than a sort of dialectical process, rather than this place. I mean, this place was in a, a, a period of transition. It was in a period of flux when Oxycontin was introduced. And a lot of these accounts never take that in into consideration. Um, there is a, a big, I guess, book that's about to be turned into a series for Hulu. It's called Dope Sick by Beth Macy. It's probably one of the, the better examples of what I'm talking about. And so, as you pointed out, they, they line up Purdue Pharma, pain mill doc, pill mill specialist doctors on one side. And on the other side, yeah, it's community activists, it's lawyers, scientists, and, and law enforcement. And so what these narratives leave out is that law enforcement is actually heavily complicit in contributing to this crisis, which was a public health crisis. It wasn't a crime crisis like they pointed out at the time. It was a massive public health crisis. And by militantly going after people who used Oxycontin and other opioids, they actually made the crisis worse. And they made it harder for people to enter recovery programs and to be able to get sober on their own time and their own terms. You write that the political and media classes wasted no time raising these simplified uh, reactionary specter of crime as both a metric of social change and a demand for action, according to the Boston Herald. Oxycontin was fueling a crime wave around the country, particularly in poor areas. A new story from Tazewell County in southwestern Virginia, and cited by the author you just mentioned, Beth Macy, in her popular account of the crisis, Dope Sick, noted that between August 1999 and August 20 or August 2000, 150 people had been charged with OxyContin-related felonies, such as robbing pharmacies and stealing copper wire from abandoned mine sites. And then you mentioned how former Kentucky Republican Governor Ernie Fletcher published a study in 2003 that included the breathless claim that OxyContin problems are overwhelmingly the law enforcement communities. Many of these stories exaggerated stereotypes of Appalachian life, you point out, in order to paint a portrait of a backwards region in the midst of a crime crisis. Why? What's the point? What advantage does, say, a Republican governor get from exaggerating stereotypes of Appalachian life as a backwards region in the midst of a crime crisis? That doesn't sound like somebody who's supporting Appalachian life. Well, as I pointed out a minute ago, this region was actually in a its own political economic crisis. So we all know that coal mining is this industry that has been on the decline for a long time. And that is the backdrop that all of these narratives take place. It always takes place in this 
situation of declining coal employment and deindustrialization, which is, you know, that is the standard narrative we hear any time anyone talks about the Rust Belt, deaths of despair, uh, rise in opioid overdoses and everything else. What these narratives all leave out is that there was a, like I said, it was a dialectical process. There was actually another industry on the rise here. There's actually a book that just came out by Gabe Wynott, who talks about this in Western Pennsylvania, the rise of the healthcare industry. Uh, just where I live, just in the past 10 years, it's been pretty fascinating to watch pretty much every abandoned storefront in my downtown of Whitesburg be taken over by some sort of healthcare specialization in industry or, or company. And that's, that's, that was what was occurring at the time. This, this caused a shift in the gender economy, the gender workforce uh, economy around here. Because a lot of the people employed in both healthcare and service industries are women. And so this kind of created this atmosphere of uncertainty. You know, what was going to happen? What, was there going to be a shift in the sort of patriarchal uh, political system, the good old boy networks, uh, you know, that had sort of prevailed in places like this for so long? I mean, I think that a lot of people like Ernie Fletcher and others, other powerful people like Hal Rogers, like I mentioned earlier, they were taking note of these shifts. And I'm not saying that this was an intentional thing, that they went out there and, you know, stoked a moral panic about OxyContin intentionally, but just that, this, as I mentioned in the piece, that the prerogatives of the moment sort of drove them in that direction. And so, yeah, there was this atmosphere of uncertainty and, you know, what was going to happen? Was there going to be a, a political shift as well? Were people going to demand greater political representation and participation in uh, political processes. And so you see people start to latch on to this idea that opioids were driving a uh, a crime wave, it, when in all actuality, this was not the case. I, I spoke to this guy in the piece, I interviewed him, um, but I also relied a lot on his work. His name is Dr. Kenneth Tunnell. He was a criminal justice professor at Eastern Kentucky University. He's now retired, but in the mid-2000s, he had put out two studies which I thought were incredible. No one had mentioned this in any of the accounts that I had read from Beth Macy to Barry Meyer to all of these, you know, HBO just put out a documentary about the opioid crisis. None of these writers mentioned Kenneth Tunnell. And what he was pointing out was crime, crime data is publicly available. You can go back and look at it all. And what he found was that there was no rise in, in crime uh, from 1995, when OxyContin first debuted, to, say, 2001, 2002, especially in those places like the statistic you just cited early in Taysville County in Virginia. That was actually false, completely false. There was no rise in violent crime, no rise in property crimes or anything like that. There was a rise in, in use and overdoses, even though overdoses are also very hard to quantify. Uh, but there was no rise in crime. But that didn't stop people like Ernie Fletcher and Hal Rogers and others from raising the specter of, yeah, a crime wave, that this was actually, you know, tearing communities apart and, and needed some sort of like violent law enforcement response. To you, what explains that lack of fact checking? Is it just a matter of the media often being stenographers instead of reporters when it comes to covering law enforcement, that police beat reporters assume the police must be correct because... Otherwise, you're siding with the criminals. Yeah, and, and in fact, this was a really hard part 
for me to write on this story because I actually know personally some of the reporters who contributed to this reporting at the time. Um, yes, they are stenographers for the police. And I also think that it's kind of a, a, an appealing story. Um, you you got to take into consideration the time period that these stories are written. This was right, right after 9-11. This is at the height of the war on terror. You know, the public was primed to look around at its neighbors and see suspicion and paranoia and, in, 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 you know, the worst in other people. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe you can't write about terrorists in your backyard if you're in Kentucky, but you can write about the other public enemy, which is people using opioids and, and causing mass social harm. You mentioned Gabe Winant's book. He is actually going to be a guest on our show on Monday. You write that. Uh, I will also. Uh, you write it was also the case that these new industries could not provide. These are the service industries could not provide the municipal tax revenues once provided by coal. They were not large enough. Their wages and workforces incomparable to uh, extractive heavy industry. The fiscal situation was further strained by the introduction of welfare reform in 1996, which shifted the formerly federal oversight of welfare distribution and job training to state and local levels. Municipalities were suddenly saddled not only with debt, but social obligations they were unequipped to handle. The path ahead was therefore uncertain. Why were they unequipped to handle the social obligations of welfare uh, redistribution and uh, job training? Didn't President Clinton's welfare reform package provide the funding for welfare distribution and job training and the process in which you can do it? Well, you would think so, but um, in places like where I live in eastern Kentucky, a lot of the administrative uh, state, or I guess you could call it that, at the local level, at the county level, a lot of the revenues for that came from coal extraction. This has been the problem with eastern Kentucky and places like central Appalachia for decades now. Many people have been pointing this out for decades, and that's why they refer to the coal industry here as a mono-economy because the entire political economy of this region was propped up by coal, but there was never anything put back into the, uh, you know, the infrastructure here um, to support other ways of life and other economic activities. And so coal basically extracted everything out of uh, the local society here, not just uh, labor, but also infrastructure. And so, a lot of these counties had become reliant on coal and severance taxes from coal. When that shift started to occur, when coal started to leave, uh, counties basically had to sit down and say, well, where's our revenue going to come from now? How are we going to stay afloat? Some counties were actually literally facing uh, dissolution. I think McGoffin County over here, about two hours from where I live, was facing dissolution as a legal entity. And it happened right at the same time that welfare reform occurred. So if you're a municipal planner or if you are a county uh, magistrate or a county secretary and you're looking at this situation, you're saying, well, coal severance tax is going away, which is our biggest form of revenue. Um, that means property taxes are also going down because our middle class here is leaving. They're going to go be employed in other industries and other places. And you've also got this situation of welfare reform where we are now saddled with new obligations and, we're, and that requires extra capacity, extra administrative capacity. So where are we going to get the revenue for this? 
one way that they've gotten the revenue from this is carceral infrastructure. So there, there is an arrangement with the state of Kentucky where the state of Kentucky will pay counties to hold state prisoners. But that's just part of, that's just part of the situation here. And actually, I really relied on the work of uh, Judas Shept. He's a professor at EKU. And Jack Norton, who works for the Vera Institute, they had written this thing a couple years ago about how counties in eastern Kentucky were now relying on carceral infrastructure as a main source of revenue. So, yeah, one of those one of the uh, pillars of that is the arrangement where the state will pay counties to hold state prisoners. The second pillar to that is that if you are a county, you can continue selling bonds to raise more money for more carceral infrastructure if you have all assumed the political prerogative of prosecuting the drug war. If you say more people will continue to be in jail, we can sell more bonds to build more jails. To, you know what I'm saying? So it becomes a cycle that they then are sort of beholden to because they don't really have any other choice. I mean, it is sort of baked into how they will stay afloat in the future. On welfare reform, what is called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, that was passed by the U.S. Senate by a vote of 78 to 21. However, much like NAFTA, President Clinton got the vast majority of his support from the Republican Party. With welfare reform, Democratic senators split 25 to 21 in favor of the bill. Republicans supported it 53 to 0. Who do Kentuckians hold responsible? Bill Clinton? The Republican Party, who do they hold responsible for the problems that mass incarceration caused, the problems that welfare reform caused? I would say that the vast majority of Kentuckians are probably still pretty apolitical. Kentucky is an extremely impoverished state. It has one of the highest incarceration rates in the nation, and it has one of the highest voter disenfranchisement rates in the the nation. And so I'd say a lot of people are pushed out of the political process altogether. If you look at the way Kentucky votes, it is predominantly towards Republicans. Um, but that, that voter base is largely not drawn from eastern Kentucky, the part of the state where I live, which is incredibly impoverished. Uh, most of those voters are in the sort of more affluent suburbs outside of Louisville and Lexington, um, they have benefited from the immiseration of places like eastern Kentucky. And so to the extent that people where I live blame anybody at all, I'd say they, they probably blame both parties. So to you, what explains the criminalized response instead of one addressing a public health care crisis? To what extent is this a matter of, as 20th century philosopher Andrew Kaplan coined the phrase, give a small boy a hammer and he will find that everything he encounters needs a pounding. I love that original version of that, which has now become, (laughs) if the only tool you have is a hammer, you will start treating all your problems like a nail. Was a militaristic police response to the opioid crisis driven by simply the increased financing of police while cutting public health costs? It was part of it for sure, because, you know, we've talked a lot a bit about this on our podcast as well, but a lot of money was poured into, and this, this is partially due to the crime bill that Clinton also signed into effect, and that our Congressman Hal Rogers you know, pushed, but a lot of money was poured into creating uh, police jobs, especially where we live. There was a 22, and I mentioned this in, our, in the article, there was a $22 million rural law enforcement technology center constructed just 30 minutes down the road from where I live in 2001. 
And this this center was, you know, decked out with all of the latest uh, state-of-the-art law enforcement technology. Why a a region with a, you know, extremely low population base would need this sort of state-of-the-art uh, law enforcement technology is beyond me, but it does create jobs. And so if you're a person in a, in a community like where I live, your job, you only have like three or four job options. You can work in the service industry, you can work in healthcare, or you can become a cop. And becoming a cop, I mean, it's a steady salary. You got benefits and a pension. Uh, and I think that, you know, that is also baked into the political economy of it as well. I don't think that that entirely accounts for why the public was so primed for a militaristic response. I think that you've also got to take into account, like I said earlier, the the historical period that this was occurring. Um, the The war against opioids in Kentucky was launched literally one month after the war in Iraq was launched. And they do kind of follow similar logics, which I get into in the piece. Um, and but then there's also, like I said earlier, there's this atmosphere of uncertainty. Like, what's going to happen next? Well, we can push those questions down the road if we can just start treating our neighbors as suspect, if they are public enemies as well. You know, and so I think I'm coming at this angle of saying we had this massive shift in the political economy 20 years ago. Why did we not see an accompanying shift in the political structures itself? And who and who was in occupying it? Well, I think one of the reasons is because you have this new public enemy that we devote uh, resources and our militarized response to going after. And that uh, sows dissension in the working class and in the professional classes as well. That prevents any kind of solidaristic response to the shifts in political economy that are happening at the, at that time. So what impact did criminalizing the opioid crisis have on curbing the number of deaths caused by opioids? Because that would seem to be what would be the number one goal of the community is a public health concern, even though they're criminalizing it. So what impact did criminalizing the opioid crisis have on curbing deaths? Well, it's funny you mention that. If you were to ask, so what we're talking about here specifically is a program called Operation Unite. That was the program that they launched the war on opioids under. And like I said, it was launched in 2003. If you were to ask them, they are still around, but their funding has largely dried up because of, actually because the Democrats ended earmark spending in 2007. Um, But their funding is largely dried up, but they're still around as a sort of shell organization, a public advocacy organization. If you were to ask them, they say that they are responsible for uh, the decline in deaths that we are seeing now, because I guess over the last year or so, we have seen a decline in drug overdose deaths in eastern Kentucky. I don't think that that's the case in the long run, in the aggregate. And if you go back and you look at what they were doing, as I pointed out in the piece, and I interviewed multiple drug counselors and public defenders, if you put people in, uh, if you incarcerate them, if you incarcerate people who are addicted to drugs, it actually can exacerbate um, they their need to use, it, and it can make their their recovery process even harder. And that's what they did. And we have, you know, we've got all kinds of statistics to show that 
incarceration went up in the mid-2000s after they launched this war. Um, And they didn't even start offering uh, recovery and treatment options until about two years after they launched it. And so I think in, in, it would be incredibly difficult to prove this, and, and so I'm not comfortable saying it definitively, but I think that what happened is they probably made the crisis worse in the sense that they, because they did not offer any kind of treatment options at first and instead went after it in this totally militaristic way, they inflamed the crisis. They made it any, even worse, and, and that is why I think that the law enforcement is just as complicit in this as you know the the familiar actors we know in this story, like Purdue Pharma and the pain pain doctors. And you point out that the program simultaneously, the Unite program, simultaneously aspired to punishment, humanitarianism, and hearts and minds outreach, all hallmarks of the war on terror. What's wrong with those as goals? I mean, they sound good, right? Well, punishment doesn't, but humanitarianism and (laughs) hearts and minds outreach does. So they seemed well-intentioned, at least two of those. So, So what's the problem with those as your three goals? Well, it doesn't allow the people using these drugs any kind of agency or autonomy over how they use them. You know, it's, it's been fascinating to see just in the last five years, a lot of people really are starting to become more open to the idea of harm reduction. Like we have a clean needle exchange in our county now that started about three years ago. I mean, that would have been unheard of 20 years ago. And it's pretty fascinating because you go back and you will read accounts of people saying, because there were people skeptical of Unite and what they were doing, they would say, we can't arrest our way out of this crisis. We need to provide treatment options. But that didn't matter. People like Hal Rogers and the people running Unite did not listen to any of that. And they went after this uh, militaristically. Um, And so, yeah, so... And if you want to go even deeper on this, and I didn't even point this out in the piece because I, you, know, you run out of space and you run out of time. But the reason why it is so fascinating that they were kind of operating on the same logic as the war in Iraq and the larger war on terror is because Hal Rogers was actually leading the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. In 2003, he was tapped to as part of his position on the House Appropriations Committee, he was tasked as the person to lead the, the largest restructuring of the federal government in 50, 50 years in creating the Department of Homeland Security. So the guy that was the architect of the war on opioids was also deeply involved in the war on terror. And so the logics feed off of each other. And, I mean, it was obviously a political home run for him. I mean, if you can... Um, prosecute both of these wars at the same time on kind of the same grounds, uh, it, you know, makes him look very good. And it makes other, you know, makes prosecutors look good. Uh, they, they also benefited from this. And I couldn't get, I talked to several of them. I couldn't get any of them to comment on the record because they were all very proud of what they did. They were not going to go back. And uh, as one of them told me, he, he was not interested in going back and relitigating what he did. They were very proud of what they did and they think they did the right thing. And um, so, yeah, I mean, these, these people all benefited from this politically, and uh, it's a political home run if you can um, wa- wage several wars on those ideas. 
and you point out that the problem in both Eastern Kentucky and the Middle East was that these three, these were contradictory aims, and one was prioritized over the others of the seven of the eight million dollars in federal funds that Congressman Hal Rogers obtained to start Unite. Seventy percent went to its law enforcement task force, a team of roughly forty detectives selected from police and sheriff departments throughout the region. So, but even if the three goals, Terrence, even if the three goals of punishment, humanitarianism, and hearts and mind outreach were equally funded, would that contradictory nature of those three aims still have undermined not only the war on terror, but the war on oxy? Absolutely. Because if you look at the way they went about it, and actually it's kind of funny because it's the same in Iraq, kind of like debathification. If you look about the way they went about it, they made it, they created a social atmosphere that was impossible for any kind of treatment to occur for any kind of rehabilitation or restructuring or anything to recur. And so what they did here in Eastern Kentucky was on the punishment side, they would go out, they would, you know, the detectives would be undercover for a certain amount of weeks or months. They would, you know, get their informants to sell people uh, Oxycontin. They would buy it or they would get them to sell them to them. And so then they would put out warrants and then they would accrue all of their warrants for one day. And they would put out a press release telling everybody that the next day was going to be a big drug roundup. And so the police would just sweep through a community. They would round up about 40 or 50. I think at one roundup, they, they rounded up more than a hundred people. They would take them all down to one central location in a town where Everybody could see them. You'd usually be a, a high school gym or an old high school gym or a public parking lot so that everybody in the community could see in full view who was the public enemy and who had to be targeted and who was the reason that things were in crisis, things were bad, you know, coal was going away, all these things were happening. And so if you create that social atmosphere – of suspicion and hatred and uh, division, that, that's an atmosphere that makes it completely impossible to then create compassion and rehabilitation and treatment. N- no one is going to want to help someone if, if they are also experiencing hard times in their community and then they can look down the street and see uh, one of their fellow community members lined up in a perp walk and the cops and the media are telling them these people are the reason that your life is so hard and why things are so bad. That's, that's not a, an atmosphere that is going to lend itself to treatment and rehabilitation. And that's what Unite did. They did that for several years before they even offered treatment options. And so, I mean, but yes, but even if they had offered treatment options, you're right. There, there is no way that it would have it would have worked because, like you pointed out, like we pointed out, those aims are completely contradictory, and they sow division among people. And that's not the way that we treat a public health crisis. Everybody has to come together. We all have to agree that there is a common humanity that people are sick. And um, but even beyond that, if people want to experiment with drugs, if they want to use drugs, they have to be able to do it safely. And uh, there needs to be some sort of process by which we can all look out for and care for each other. That that was all undermined by the way in which Unite was undertaken. You describe one of these arrests. You write how Cindy Allison, a community activist in Harlan County, told you that in the early days of Unite, she and a handful of community members 
formed a local chapter of Unite in the hopes that the organization would build a women's rehab center in their community. One morning, Unite invited Allison's group to a press conference at the local high school. You then quote Allison saying, we thought it was going to be an announcement about some sort of rehab facility, but when we get there, she explains it was a public drug bust. They brought everybody to the old high school gym as a holding area before they took them on to jail. And we were like, we don't want to be here because we don't want to be associated with this part of it. We want people to be able to reach out to us if they want help and not feel like they're going to be turned over to the cops. So Terrence, does shame work? <laughs> Definitely not. You know, this was an astonishing anecdote. I'd always heard about these public roundups. I never saw one for myself. I'd always heard about them and you know, and I had interviewed Cindy and she told me this anecdote and I was just astonished by this. But this was not out of the ordinary. This happened quite a bit and the press was always invited to these events. I found multiple front page uh, front pages of newspapers that would feature these uh, people. In many cases, um, local faith leaders were invited out to minister to the people as they were handcuffed. And, you know, many of them are still wearing the pajamas because they were literally dragged out of bed. I mean, that was unconstitutional. You can't, you know, you can't allow someone to speak to uh, a suspect before they've been indicted. I mean, what they were doing was completely unprecedented. It was it was illegal, unconstitutional, and there were people who called that out at the time, actually. But the atmosphere was so um, heated, it was so divisive that the people who did call out that this was unconstitutional and wrong, they were shouted down, they were targeted, they were ridiculed. I mean, um, and some of those people who I spoke with they they were astonished that I would want to write about this. It's like they had been waiting 15 years for someone to actually tell the correct story. Um, they had experienced heart, and I mentioned one of them in the article. Her name was Sharon Allen. Um, she, like I said, she was astonished that someone would want to write about this because this had caused her a lot of stress and grief at the time that um, people had ridiculed and mocked her for pointing out that this was wrong. This was not the right way to do it. And um, and she was, you know, really elated that someone would want to tell the correct story. Um, and so, yeah, the correct story was that they were shaming people. And you you can't. I mean, if this is a public health crisis, if this is um, but even more fundamentally, if it's something that you enjoy doing, you're not hurting anybody while you're doing it. You should be given the time and the space and the agency to uh, to either get sober or to continue using or whatever you want to do but shame is definitely not the way to go about trying to change somebody's behavior i mean setting aside the fact that we would even want to change somebody's behavior i mean i mean if there was crime if there was crime resulting from this then maybe we could talk about that. But as we know, there wasn't. It was completely fabricated. People were getting high in their own homes or they were overdosing or, 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 or whatever. But this was not something that was causing social chaos in the way that the reactionaries at the time said they were. 
And you're right. At first, Unite not only failed to fund rehabilitation, it actively rejected the most up-to-date science on how to treat addiction after the Mountain Eagle newspaper in Whitesbury, Kentucky, ran a feature in the summer of 2004 on the now industry-standard medication-assisted treatment method, of which Suboxone is one well-known example. Unite's Director of Treatment and Education, Kathy Stout, responded, quote, so far, we're not an advocate for that type of treatment. And you explained this was not an inconsequential uh, choice. Unite led the way, had Unite led the way on MAT, on this medical assist, medication-assisted treatment, likely it would have made a big difference. And you also point out that the few treatment facilities that did exist in the region took their cues from Unite, and so they too rejected MAT. The Kentucky River Community Care Facility in Jackson, Kentucky, even did so on the shocking grounds that the culture of Eastern Kentucky was not ready to accept it. What are the cultural concerns of medical-assisted treatment? Well, so medical-assisted treatment is, is yes, you pointed it out. What it is is it just uses uh, drug Suboxone or, or buprenorphine um, to treat. It's, it's sort of the same concept behind methadone treatment for heroin. Um, and I think that what they were getting at with the cultural uh, implication there was they were saying that uh, people here are still too backwards to understand um, that the, the, the concept of harm reduction. And so if you get them hooked, I'm using scare quotes there, on a substitute drug like Suboxone, they're going to still keep using. The reason we use Suboxone and buprenorphine and other things to treat opioid addiction is because it's safer and it's because it's monitored. And you can, and people can have greater control over how they use. And if they want to stop using, they can have a resource to go to, someone to go to and help them get weaned off of it. It's a completely rational response to drug use, um, it, you know, based in science, based in what we know about how the brain works and how, how addiction works. And it was completely rejected, um, which was shocking to me. Uh, I... I think that, um, yeah, I think that what they were saying, yes, with the sort of cultural cop out there was that they had been so inundated with this idea that the region was, like we said earlier, sort of um, embroiled in a crime crisis, that these drugs were tearing society apart and that they had to, we had to exercise complete militants and get them off the streets and, and people had to be abstinent in and all kinds of substance use. And, and so uh, by furthering that through, um, you know, medic, medication-assisted tre- treatment from the MAT method, that we would continue on the same path. And, um, and like I said, that would like, that's not rational. It's very condescending. It's insulting. Um, and, but this is, this is the atmosphere that Unite created. And um, and I'm not sure that they embraced Matt. I don't think they embraced the Matt method in, until 2005. We are speaking with Terrence Ray, who wrote the Baffler article, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. Terrence is a writer living in Whitesbury, Kentucky, and is co-host of the podcast Trillbilly Workers Party. You can follow Terrence on Twitter, at the Trillbillies. You quote Waynesburg Free Drug Coalition member Connie Frederick screaming at a Lincoln County public gathering, we need to kill the drug dealers. That's the only way you're going to get rid of them. 
You add statements like this were common. It was a war after all. And in the early 2000s, America was deeply invested in telling people that you do not win wars with compassion. Do you think this contributed in any way to the rise of far-right extremism we have seen in the United States growing since the Oxy ep- uh, epidemic? How, how much influence have anti-Oxy politics had on conservatism? Are, are they a reflection of it or a cause? That's a great question. Um, I think it's probably that they are a reflection of it, but it does feed into, um, in a kind of sort of dialectical process, it feeds into what their next um, big issues are going to be and how they reassemble themselves. So, you know, as we pointed out in the article, the quote that you mentioned, quotes like that were common at the time. And there was a community dimension to unite unite itself actually um, encouraged people to start their own community groups anti-drug community groups they funded them they gave them uh, computer software compute actual computers they encouraged them to go to courts and supervise the trials of suspected drug users and dealers um, they encourage them to basically intimidate judges, juries, and prosecutors to demand the most severe sentences available. This was political action. I mean, this was organized political action, too. And it was in service to an extremely reactionary cause. And, and it wasn't just, you know, upper middle class, you know, taxpayer activists, um, you know, fueling this, there was working class people involved in this too. And this is the real harm of Unite and why that's the kind of angle I'm coming at this from. The region, as we pointed out, was in a state of crisis. You needed some sort of solidaristic response to it, some sort of um, creation of a working class response. And that was made impossible by the response to this opioid epidemic. And it wasn't just that it was an organic thing. Unite heavily uh, encouraged people to start their own anti-drug groups. To, to they, they fomented this atmosphere of uh, you know hatred and loathing for drug users and drug dealers, and and this is this is the real uh, reason behind why the opioid epidemic tore communities apart. It wasn't the drug itself and people using it; it was the response to it, specifically. The encouragement by lawmakers, prosecutors, other people to form community groups that would target individual members of society for punishment and incarceration. And as we've witnessed throughout history, that is a very bad environment in which to build a working class movement. I just find that fascinating that it's a top down grassroots organization. Because that sounds a right. lot like what the Tea Party ended up becoming in around 2008. It seems like the almost the exact same model where people believe... It was astroturfed, yeah. Right, where people believe that they are involved in some sort of grassroots activism when in reality they're being manipulated by top-down donorship. You quote Ernie exactly. Lewis, the former head of the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy, saying that those community groups resembled as much as anything a mob. So did the war on Oxy not bring the community together as much as it taught the community how to act like a mob? And if that's the case, what's the difference between being a community 
and being a mob? Well, I think a community looks out for each other. I think they take care of each other. Um, obviously, that can go in reactionary directions because there are wealthy people in a community who exploit the not wealthy people. And so, yes, this brings to the surface all kinds of questions of what is community, who is in a community, who creates it. Um, but I think that what differentiates that from a mob is that the mob is united in, well, it's like I said in the title, they are, in this case, united in rage against who they perceive to be the social class tearing their community apart. And, and that's why, that, that's what all these narratives and accounts of the opioid epidemic miss. They miss that there was a massive shift in the political economy occurring at the time. And, and, it caused people to look around, like I mentioned earlier, people who had been affected by this shift and say, why is my life like this? Why is it not improving? Why can't I start a family or buy a house? Or you know, why, am I, why aren't my wages going up? Why, is, why are things getting worse? Well, you have people coming along and saying, well, that's why. It's people using drugs. Those are the people. And if you, if you unite with your neighbors against them, then things will get better. And that's a pretty, I mean, I can understand why somebody would be uh, receptive to that message. Um, you don't have anybody else telling you what's going wrong. You don't have anybody else telling you how to fix it. Unions had been decimated. Uh, as, we saw, as we saw earlier, welfare had been decimated. I mean, all of the institutions that had brought people together in a common uh, unity against, let's say, the bosses and the capitalists, those were gone. So who, who do you turn to? Who, who do you band together with to make your community better? Not to mention that this is going on at the height of the war on terror. So like I said, none of these factors are included in any of these big sort of accounts of the opioid epidemic. All of them just follow the same narrative of big pharma. They're bad. They created pills. <clears throat> People use them. Then we had to do something about it. Big Pharma is bad, and I think this was partially what I was nervous about before publishing this. I was really nervous people were going to misunderstand me and say that, like, well, we've got to let Big Pharma off the hook. Not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that they created the conditions for someone to latch onto this opportunistically and then take it to very reactionary places. And you write that contradictory attitudes toward drug use of letting some succeed while others stay tied into the system lay bare the reality that many find difficult to admit. Drug use has no intrinsic meaning, but is instead a social relation. What do you mean by drug use being a social relation? Well, as I point out, I think in the next sentence, we ascribe meaning onto drug use. It can mean anything. The thing about opioids, which I think is fascinating which I don't really understand why they managed to, well, actually I can't understand because probably a lot of people hadn't tried them yet. Opioids aren't a drug that you party on. They, they mellow you out. You don't, when you take opioids, you don't want to go do crimes. This is why them, this is why them trying to uh, convince everybody that there was a crime wave in retrospect looks really funny and ridiculous because when you take opioids, you don't want to go rob a bank. You want to sit at home and watch TV or go to sleep. Um, that would be the case maybe with an amphetamine or a type of speed or something. 
Um, but yes, with opioids, that's not what we usually see. And, and, and that gets at what I'm saying. When you take a drug, there's a chemical modification that occurs in your body. But for it to have any meaning, it has to be in relation to other people. Otherwise, it's just someone sitting at home modifying the chemicals in their body. And what does that mean? That means nothing. And so for it to actually have any sort of social valence, it has to have a social relation. And, and so as I point out, there is a reason why we consider alcohol to be fine, even though it ruins many people's lives. I've seen it many, ruin many people's lives, just in my friends and family. Uh, and that's okay, though. It's legal. It's fine. It's okay to take it. But, but opioids, which ruin just as many lives, probably statistically n- not nearly as many as alcohol, that's not okay for whatever reason. And so that, that hints at a social relation. There is a mystification going on and a fetishization process going on. And, and so, again, none of these large account, uh, narratives of the epidemic take any of that into account. They just, like I said, big pharma creates the pill, people take the pill, then there's mass social chaos. Well, what is going on? You know, wh- what do we mean by that? Like, why, why is there an opioid epidemic but not an alcohol epidemic? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. It's for the same reason that there was a crack epidemic in the 80s but not a cocaine epidemic. These are social processes, and, um, and they always go uninvestigated, though. I mean – you know, in the larger narrative of how we talk about drugs, how we talk about the war on drugs, how we talk about people using them. Um, and this feeds, this lends itself to very reactionary causes. One last question for you, Terrence. Uh, we've been speaking with Terrence Ray, who wrote the Baffler article, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. Terrence is a writer living in Whitesburg, Kentucky. And as a co-host of the podcast, Trillbilly Workers Party, you can find our interview with Terrence from April 2019 at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his name. When we discussed another Baffler article, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. And you can follow Terrence on Twitter, at the Trillbillies. Our final question for you, as always, as for all of our guests, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So are we building a police state out of exaggerated fears and unwillingness to recognize drug use as a social problem and not as a crime and a refusal to address the impact of austerity, deregulation and market restructuring? And if we are, is the only way to continue that kind of denialism of the problems of austerity, deregulation and market structuring? through militarized police force that tears communities apart. Will we have an expanding police state as long as we are in denial about the impact of austerity, deregulation, and market restructuring? I think yes. I think that not only do the statistics indicate that, but I think it's built into the logic of how we create infrastructure at this point. This is part of what I was getting at in the piece, which is that if you're a municipal planner and you're looking at your next couple of decades and how and revenue streams and how you sell bonds and what you bring what revenue you bring in you could conceivably look at society and say well there might not be civilians for civilian or civil infrastructure in 100 years we might not need roads and bridges but there will be prisoners and so we can have carceral infrastructure and we can continue raising money off that 
That is a contradiction, though. At a certain point, you can't put everybody in prison. I mean, like, in, in, but that is the path we're on. And so just like every other aspect of capitalist society, there's a contradiction baked into it. And so at what point do we come up against that? We're not there yet. But, um, but unfortunately, the answer to your question is that, yes, uh, we can continue to see that um, go up. But like I pointed out in the article, that is a burden for a lot of municipalities and counties. Um, you know, some some counties aren't able to withstand it, and they have to, uh, you know, fire their whole police force and uh, close their jail. Um, but I don't know. that That is an interesting dynamic that we're going to have to be vigilant against in the next couple of decades. And you offer that amazing statistic that if Kentucky stays on its current trajectory of incarceration levels, in 113 years, everybody in Kentucky is going to be in prison. That's <laughs> right, exactly. Pr- pretty amazing. Terrence, thank you so much for being back on our show. Terrence Ray wrote the Baffler article, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. And as I said earlier, we probably shouldn't tell you this, but because he literally has 10 times more subscribers on Patreon. But you can also find Trillbilly Workers Party at patreon.com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Terrence. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. Sure. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all of the ways that you can support This Is Hell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to uh, tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live. Live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast at the same place shortly after. On Patreon this week, have you ever noticed how easy and convenient they've made it for us to destroy the planet? I mean, it's so easy that we do it every day without even thinking about it, without even questioning our destructive actions. Hell, I did it this morning and do it every morning with a profligate use of natural resources that is completely unnecessary. And I do it every day. Just think on that final day of human life on Earth. As the last one of us is taking their ultimate breath... They will be able to say, well, that was easy. And not only easy, destroying the world is cool, too. Also on Patreon tomorrow, we are playing one of my favorite interviews from the first decade of the 21st century, a 2007 talk with anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom, author of Global Outlaws. In order to map and trace the global pathways of crime, Carolyn traveled to Africa, Europe, Asia, and the United States and sought out illegal trade. She did so by traveling as if she was illegal trade. That is, she traveled without a passport, without passing through customs, without any legal oversight whatsoever, outside of the view of Johnny Law, just like any illegal good would travel. In doing so, Carolyn could see exactly how illegal trade moved globally. It's a fascinating book and an intense conversation that makes you rethink how crime works in an age of globalization and some hot tips on how to avoid border guards. So tomorrow on This Is Hell's Patreon podcast, I will be talking about the ease of destruction and we'll be sharing a conversation on crime by an anthropologist who made 
themselves the crime, but you can only hear that by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell in a few minutes. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff eats from the poison tree. Alex, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is and give us some more responses. This week's question from hell is what can you do that a robot can't? What can you do that a robot can't? Jeffrey D says vacuum deep into corners. Scotty says understand cats. Wait, well, maybe not. Lenny B says the robot can also be programmed to wash and wipe your ass after you poop, Pablo. Who's Pablo? I don't know. I looked it up and I couldn't find. <laughs> I was it. trying to find. Uh, looking, I was looking in the comments. I thought he was making a remark about somebody else. What can you do that a robot can't? Mark C says procreate, defecate, pontificate. Mm. Joel G says hug my wife and children. Aiden M says live. Todd K says whack off. Thanks for the uh, old timey reference. I know. Time. I miss hearing whacking off. By the way, masturbate is not M A S T E R. <laughs> There's a U in there somewhere. A couple of via email. Oh, Jesus is a good one. Uh, what can you do the robot can't? Adam B says eat fart 69. <laughs> oh, God. Daniel Z says wish you well and mean it. Craig J says join a union for now. What can you do that a robot can't? Just a couple more responses via Twitter. Charles WD says, understand Marx's concept of socially necessary labor time. Old Palette Fart 69 says, acquire slack. Praise Bob. Michael D says, defecate and wipe. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of defecation chat going on and what binds us to humanity. La Acera says, worry. In a nutshell says, digest a ribeye. Lopsided wonder says, I've been charged with many different types of batteries. What is something you can do that a robot can't? John says, drink too much. And Leo M. says, regret what I've done. Praise Bob, by the way. I'm uh, right now going through the process of applying for my ministry ship, ministerial ship, whatever, within the Church of the Subgenius. I have to officiate a wedding. So the answers I liked the most were Robert saying experience insomnia, anxiety, and depression. I did like Jeff's answer of vacuum deep into corners and Ronaldo's love, sweet love. I was kind of surprised it took a couple of days for somebody to actually answer love. Bradley saying dive despair. Mickle saying your mom. Braden saying procrastinate. Fabio saying go into debt. Andrea saying whiling away the hours in a state of near constant existential dread. Dave saying being a diabetic, Zach saying complete a CAPTCHA test, and Dan saying F up a wet dream. So that makes this week's winner, Andrea, whiling away the hours in a state of near constant existential dread. I'll tell you my answer to this week's question from hell after Jeffy. I love to die of despair, too. Yeah, I did like that, too. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I know you have, Jeffy, on the line. Fruit of the Poison Tree. Welcome to the Moment of Truth, the thirst that is the drink. Up here in Antrim County, Michigan, there's a rumor afoot that the founder of the Frisky Family Orchards was a real live runaway Nazi. Well, not really a rumor at this point. He was a pilot for Hitler's Luftwaffe. But for a long time, it's said, he used to refer to himself merely as a World War II veteran. Maybe to avoid the bad association some folks have with those who fought on behalf of the Third Reich. I don't blame the guy for concealing it. 
U.S. citizens, those who call themselves Americans, are a bigoted bunch. There was a time when resentment of Germans was so strong here, people changed the word sauerkraut to liberty cabbage in casual conversation. And what could be more casual than talking about fermented shredded cabbage? So somehow, Richard Friske, who arrived in the U.S. with his wife Olga in 1952, figured that in order to better disguise his German Nazi Fliegendermann background, he could do worse than to don the mantle of a U.S. neo-Nazi. So he joined the John Birch Society, supported George Wallace for president in 1968, and got his entire family to be rabid nativists. The Friskies donated to David Duke, Rick Santorum, and a number of other brainless spewers of hate against immigrants, homosexuals, and uppity city slickers like yours truly. People here still here tell about the Friskies no-mask policy during the pandemic lockdown. One letter to the editor of the Petoskey News Review vowed never to return after seeing the workers in the kitchen handling food unmasked during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was part of Frisky's policy of allowing staff and customers to make personal choices regarding their health. Sounds like they want us to be able to pick our own doctors or maybe get an abortion should we choose one. But really, they just want to give everyone the freedom to spread whatever infections they might be harboring. The letter writer concludes by mourning that they will never again enjoy the taste of Frisky's cherry donuts, the ones in the brown paper bag, with grease stains indicating freshness. Frisky's wasn't just a passive spreader of the virus. They've held a couple super spreader events in their parking lot to bawl and whinge about the tyranny of the face mask mandate and how Democrats were out to turn the white man extinct. Last month, the My Pillow guy was there for a mass viral load sharing, along with the famous crazy lady who testified drunkenly to the Michigan State Legislature next to Rudy Giuliani, and a few hundred other brainwashed foot soldiers of the Trump regime. They were big supporters of a lawsuit to try to get the county's votes in the last presidential election recounted Arizona style. The suit was dismissed because even the Republican judge found that the account had been properly reviewed already. And Friskies, whose motto is, Not your average fruit stand. They do walk the walk, goose step the goose step, sometimes even backwards. Even their proud associations with David Duke, the NRA, the John Birch Society, and other anti-foreigner organizations don't prevent their field labor staff from being admirably diverse. In fact... They were recently raided for employing undocumented immigrants. Last August, a helpful neighborly fascist started a fundraiser to stave off the potential forced closing of our business for refusing to submit to Governor Whitmer's unlawful executive orders. To date, 11 months later, it has yet to reach even half its monetary goal. Apparently, fellow fascists up here are taking up the cause of exercising the free choice to keep their dollars in their wallets. Frisky's counterpart, closer to the reasonable end of the spectrum, is King Orchards. They have always been liberal Democrat leaners, not particularly revolutionary, but neither are they overtly supportive of a nativist populism that might make one think of the Ku Klux Klan. 
They have honored the mask requirements and avoided shows of militia-like rebellion against guidelines for businesses to avoid spreading dangerous viruses. But one needn't be as radically left as King Orchards is ridiculously considered to be by those insulated within a fascist news bubble, like listeners to multiple felon trucker Randy Bishop, Antrim County's white rural version of Tokyo Rose. Most businesses have found it in their non-radical hearts to honor restrictions intended to curtail the spread of COVID-19. In Charlevoix, about 15 minutes north of Fascist Friskies, is John Cross Fisheries, where we in the Dorchin family acquire our fish, including salmon, whitefish, and trout, smoked right there on the Cross premises. In fact, my sister and I bought about 60 bucks worth on Monday for consumption by our extended family of Jews, mixed-race Catholics, lapsed Baptists, and a first-generation Cambodian of no declared cosmological belief so far. When my sister and I entered the establishment to purchase our freshwater delicacies, we honored the sign that said we could enter maskless if we'd been fully vaccinated, and we added our number of customer bodies to the two already inside, bringing the number to four, the highest number allowable. As we were communicating and awaiting our order, the other two patrons left, and two newcomers came in to replace them, but a third, buzzard-like crone, attempted to enter as well. The Paul Bunyan-esque blonde woman at the counter wasn't having it. Only four allowed in at a time. But I'm with them, insisted the weirding woman, as if that declaration somehow altered the mathematical nature of reality, which is why I snickered cruelly, which sound, I believe, sent the hag scampering. John Cross III, owner of the joint, is no innocent, however. It's just that associating with secessionistas is not his style, which style showed itself in April 2019 when he was sentenced to a year in federal custody after pleading guilty to a misdemeanor charge related to his acquisition and sales of illegally caught lake trout. Cross would be allowed to serve his time in the off-season, it was reported which I thought was a nod to Cross's otherwise decent behavior as a businessman and the 70-year legacy of Cross Fisheries in general. Ancient listeners might remember an essay of mine entitled Thomas Friedman versus the Methodist Fish Fry. Spoiler alert, the fish fry wins. And the titular fish in that story was indeed provided by John Cross Fisheries. There was an agreement between tribal fishing nations and the U.S. government that the tribes people would change from using gill nets to trap nets in order not to maim the fish they caught, and in order to replenish the lake trout population in the Great Lakes, they would release lake trout caught in those new nets, keeping only less threatened species such as perch, pike, and whitefish for consumption and sale. In exchange for releasing the lake trout, the government was giving the tribal fisher folk subsidies of up to $200,000. But one particular tribal go-getter wanted to augment their subsidy by selling their catch wholesale to John Cross, who went on to sell it himself to restaurants and the general public. Whether Cross knew he was committing a felony is unknown, but the onus was on him to verify the legal source of his product. It was only his and his businesses standing in the community, I believe, that allowed him to negotiate the felony charge down to a misdemeanor pleading. 
And hey, I once negotiated a B&E with larcenous intent charge down to an illegal entry and larceny under $100 charge. So, like, I know how that goes. John III and I are the same age, too, so even though I think a fishmonger owes it to the earth and water to take extra good care of the sustainability of his source of livelihood, all in all, I'm glad he negotiated a lenient punishment, as long as he promises never to do it again. And at least he's not a fascist, as far as I know. It's almost impossible for any business to avoid legal problems at some point in their existence, I don't know what clandestine shenanigans King Orchards is up to, but at least they don't rile up the populace and invite out-of-state seditious ride insiders to bounce around in their parking lot. At least they don't act as boosters for twisted conspiracy propaganda. Not of the right-wing variety, anyway. My dad was coming home from the dump, which is only open on Saturday, on 88, and as he was heading back, came across a whole police and sheriff presence gathered around the King Orchard's roadside store. He thought maybe they were there to greet the new pickers for the big surge in the cherry season. He stopped and asked the sheriff's deputy. It seems that, for taking the trouble to be all nice in Antifa, King Orchard's received a visit from none other than simple Joe Malarkey Biden, the current president of the United States probably influenced by the recent New York Times article about the political split among roadside fruit farms in Antrim County, which has been reposted and reprinted a lot in local news outlets. Joe gave fascist friskies on 31, not your average fruit stand, the cold shoulder, preferring to tool down Mancelona Highway 88 to procure a baker's dozen cherry pies from King Orchards over the July 4th weekend. And that's all the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the fascists have guns, all the guns are good-looking, and all the fruit stands are above average. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! Oh, so what are you freaked out about me coming? Uh, so, uh, I understand you will be posting an event downstairs at Carrie's Lounge on Saturday, July 24th at 1pm, which was supposed to be uh, our date for our 25th anniversary party, but we rescheduled Oh, I it. won't do that! Oh, you, well, listen, until what? September 18th, we've rescheduled until September 18th, and due to the pandemic, and now that I've gotten sick at every event I've attended <laughs> since uh, being be vaccinated, I, I'm kind of freaking out. I don't know if I'm going to be there or not, but you are going to be, my, my understanding, tell people what you're going to be doing. I'm just going to read some selected, hopefully the most humorous ones, of uh, from the book of, of uh, selected moments of truth. Cool. And you're going to have a musical accompaniment? Well, uh, Michael Zarang is going to be out of the country, so I'm looking for a new musical accompanist. And if not, I'll just tap my foot. And it's only going to be like 45 minutes at most. And what time? So, uh, one or two. Okay. We're playing it by ear. All right. I guess and, I, could uh, be in a, I get, might be able to be in a crowd for 45 minutes without freaking out. Pete's making sausages, he says. He always is making sausages. He's <laughs> a sausage maven. All right, Jeffy, until next week. What? Stay beautiful. All right. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled for next week's set of shows? Yeah, yeah. We got Gabe Winnant, who, uh, who was referenced by Terrence. That was pretty uh, cool. Yeah. 
Uh, so he's going to be on Monday's show uh, talking about his book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Sweet. Uh, still waiting on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Maybe something about Haiti. Maybe something about the environment. Maybe something about Atlanta. Still working on all that. This week's Hangover Cure is FBI agent Cooper's Hangover Cure from the 90s TV show Twin Peaks. Drink a glass of nearly frozen, unstrained tomato juice with a couple of oysters in it. Breathe deeply. Saute a mound of sweetbreads with some chestnuts and some Canadian bacon. Finally, biscuits, big biscuits smothered in gravy and some anchovies. I don't know what you do with those anchovies. Thanks to this week's guests, including writer Rohan Rice, who posted the People's Dispatch article, Hunger and Food Production in Nicaragua, How Do We Feed the People, which you can find at peoplesdispatch.org. Thanks to yesterday's guest, Chris Tomlinson, co-author of Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, with Brian Burrow and Jason Stanford. And thanks to today's guest, Terrence Ray, who wrote the Baffler article, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Egon Sheely for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another Moment of Truth. And we will be putting the entire Moment of Truth on the podcast, so you will be able to hear it. And we apologize to those who are listening via the live stream. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, just because... Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I will be revealing how easy and convenient and cool it is for us to destroy the planet at our leisure. And we will be sharing our 2007 interview with anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom on global illegal trade, where she makes herself part of that global illegal trade by traveling the world illegally. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's and all of this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. Hey, come to the bar on Wednesday. I'm making fried chicken. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.